Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And with David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. We continue to be in the busy season for awards hopefuls, even though Oscar voting doesn't open for two more months, uh, which tells you uh, how much longer we have to go. Uh, But with AFI Fest in Los Angeles and various other screenings uh, and movies premiering, there are a lot of new titles to talk about. Um, We want to do a long-promised deep dive into the screenplays category, as well as answer some of your questions on subtext. And then at the end of the episode, we'll have two interviews. David talked to Cody Smith-McPhee of The Power of the Dog, and I talked to James Samuel the director of The Harder They Fall. Lots of Westerns to get into. But first, we're going to start with the news, as usual. And I added this to the lineup at the last minute, and I linked to it, so hopefully you all saw what the line, Kirsten Dunst calling awards shrimps, means. Um, (laughs) But it's kind of exactly as promised. Um, She did an interview with Lindsay Barr at the AP, with with her and Jane Campion together, I guess. And um, she explained, uh, Kirsten Dunst explained that she and her friends, who are Kate and uh, Laura and Kate Malavia Verdarte, call awards shrimps. So if a movie is particularly awards-friendly, it's... Shrimpy. Do you guys feel like we should just adopt this without further explanation? And someone who misses this episode will just have to catch up on why we're doing this too. <laughs> what I liked about the, the, her explanation was that she's like, it's too embarrassing to talk literally about awards. So we just say, <laughs> so, but they are still talking about awards. So, you know, know, there's a little bit of healthy shame, but also a bit of healthy uh, enjoyment, which I think is a good explanation of this podcast to some extent. <laughs> Maybe a little less shame. The best part of that interview is how it gets brought up, which is Jade K and turns to 
Kirsten and says, you called it a good shrimp, right? And <laughs> yeah, she immediately adopts it. Yeah. Jane Campion also seems like someone who would be like willing to embrace awards, but also slightly embarrassed by it. One of many good reasons they seem like a really good pair. Indeed. I feel like a lot of actors and directors are going to adopt to this because I think anytime I just like blatantly ask someone about award season, they get so stiff. And now I'm just going to be like, so the shrimp, how are the shrimp doing? And they're going to totally, it's just going to be great. And then we can, uh, you know, take that. What is that line from Forrest Gump where he like describes all the different kinds of shrimp? Oh yeah. Gumbo shrimp, coconut shrimp. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we could use that. Uh, well, Forrest Gump was a very shrimpy movie, as we all know. So. Yeah. Allison Wilmore from uh, New York Magazine uh, tweeted something in response to that, that she was going to call like really like strenuous award bait films uh, the full shrimp cocktail, which I think is also <laughs> a good evolution of the term. Did you guys see the other Kirsten Dunst thing going around? This, she really is just such a wealth where it's her and Nicole Kidman at an event on like a, you know, a, a step and repeat. And you don't see the conversation. You just see in time for Kirsten Dunst to say, oh, my God, Nicole, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. And the audio's too good. It's like <laughs> it's been planted. Uh, yes, I've watched it like 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think Nicole Kidman just revealed to Kirsten Dunst? It's like the eternal question. I used to be married to your interview with a vampire co-star. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Kirsten was pretty young back then. It was hard for her to to get a grip on it. Uh, well, someone, uh, I think one of the tweet responses was, did you know that we filmed The Beguiled in Jennifer Coolidge's house? Um, which I hope is what they're talking <laughs> That's good. about. That's good. Um, okay. As I said, I wanted to, to get into some of your questions. Uh, on subtext, you can text us. Uh, go to joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7215. It really is such a great place for us to hear directly from you, and we can get right back to you. Um, and I did want to answer one on the air because uh, Courtney texted and then someone else asked me if Taylor Swift Swift's All Too Well short film would be eligible for the short film Oscars. Um, and it's not. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you. It's only because of eligibility, because it didn't open in time. It would have had to open by the end of September to be eligible this year. So it could be eligible next year. Do you, I mean, Taylor Swift hasn't gotten an Oscar nomination yet, even though we keep thinking it will. So maybe it will be as a director. Stranger things have happened. Um, and then the next question that this is going to throw to you pretty quickly, Richard, um, because Ryan wrote in asking about the worst person in the world and the fact that it's coming out in uh, February 2022. Will it qualify for top 10 lists, including yours, Richard Lawson? I emailed about that. We're being very enterprising on this episode <laughs> and emailing people asking the tough questions. Uh, yes, it had a quiet qualifying release, I believe, in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. So it is technically... I mean, it's a little bit of a fudge, but it is technically a 2021 movie. And, you know, it was at all the film festivals. And so I'm counting it. Yes. And Does spoiler alert, like a... it will be on my list. <laughs> <laughs> Does that feel like a good strategy for, for this movie in particular? I think it is. I think that if you have such a long season um, and a movie like this would really benefit from a, a late surge um so mm. I, I think it it makes as much sense as anything to be honest um I'm, I'm now getting like some slight traumatic flashbacks to last year trying to figure out what movies were 2020 and which were 2021 oh my god <laughs> that was yeah. that was horrible <laughs> judas and the black messiah will forever live on is the uh, great question mark <laughs> So we, for worst person in the world, though, for Oscars, like is the international, so you're imagining like it gets nominated for international feature and then everyone's like, oh, I want to check that out in February, which is when the Oscar nominations come out. And then it's right there in theaters. Is that the idea? Yeah. The, 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 the real Hail Mary hope would be that 
Renata Ryan's book gets a nomination as well. Maybe not at the Oscars, but for other things, like maybe yeah. she wins at New York Film Critics or somewhere else. And and that gives an extra boost. And so it has a little time. I mean, um, it it worked for the father. Yeah. That one's a good example. Uh, and even Nomadland opened, I think, in February on Hulu. After, Did it really? Wow. After a qualifying, you know, December or November release that um, <laughs> I don't know that anyone was going to theaters back then. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it just depends. And other studios are doing it. Uh, Oscar Ferrati's A Hero is opening in January wide for, wide for that movie uh, after going uh, qualifying. And I think it's already had its qualifying run. Or is that worst person in the world? I, I can't keep it straight. Um, Ooh, I don't know. But it almost is it like it's weird because those qualifying runs matter for technicalities. But like in terms of how people actually see them, even for critics, it like it could happen anytime, basically. Yeah. And I, I wonder if there is some element that I'm not fully aware of, because this happens a lot more with uh, foreign language films and international films. Um, and I wonder if it has to do with appealing to the branch at the right time or getting a certain level of visibility, because it, I, I noticed over time that it does happen more with those movies. And then one more question from Subtext that was extremely fun to answer and learn about myself from Will, who says, isn't there still a rule that the Academy can activate a best musical category if they decide there are enough contenders? There are a lot of musicals this year. What would it take? I saw this and I was like, that sounds made up. That can't possibly be true. And Rebecca, you found out it is true, although it won't work for this year for reasons maybe you can explain. It was really fun to learn something new about um, the Oscars (laughs) because I thought we really knew everything. But... And uh, but it is true there there can be a best original musical category, but for it to uh, activate, as the (laughs) language says, um, is is nearly impossible. I mean, you have to have at least 10 contenders and each contender has to have at least five original songs. So if even if we're looking at the musicals this year, most of them are not original. You know, they're from uh, they're mostly from plays. Right. So so they're from yeah. the stage. So they don't you know, each of them, I think, has has one original song. Uh, if you look at like Dear Evan Hansen, they created a new song. But but everything is pre-existing. So it is really interesting that this could happen. But I think. The odds of us ever having a year of 10 original musical movies uh, is slim. (laughs) We we can dream. I think another complication is that in order to activate it, you have to insert two keys at the same time and turn them. (laughs) And Guild Cates was buried with one of those keys. So it's (laughs) it's just the hope, all hope is lost, I think. Yeah, there's some really weird language in the the rules if you really dig in, you know, about about the keys. They're hidden underground (laughs) under the new museum. It's very complicated. (laughs) People digging up through Hollywood Forever Cemetery trying to find... Um, Rebecca, as you pointed out, the animation category actually works the same way. That has to be enough qualifying releases in the year for the category to happen. But that always happens because animated movies make money and musicals don't necessarily. So uh, it's not the only category to operate in that kind of funny way. Yes, exactly. Um, well, again, please send us your weird specific questions. We Even if we don't read them on the air, we'll try to answer them. Um, you know, I feel like uh, when you used to like write in like trivia questions to the newspaper to find out um, before Google, <laughs> we're going to be the Google for very obscure awards questions. Okay, moving on to the news of the moment. Last week, we talked about how uh, everyone was in L.A. and everyone was shaking hands. Um, and then AFI Fest happened, and there was even more of that. And I think the biggest story out of AFI Fest, and for a festival that when we were talking last week, David, you you know thought might be a little bit quieter than years past. But Tick, Tick, Boom really had this big premiere at AFI Fest last week. And all of a sudden, it felt like... 
my whole Twitter feed was swooning over this movie that, um, as I've hinted a few times, Rebecca and I both saw a, a while ago and were excited about and kind of had to keep under our hats. Um, and David, you, I don't know if you were more of a skeptic, but you were kind of like waiting to see what was in store and you really loved it, right? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I I got to um, moderate a SAG screening of the film. So I really saw it under optimal conditions because I was in a room filled with actors who gasped every 10 seconds uh, during a certain number, which I won't spoil, but which has, you know, chock full of surprises and um, that are are very uh, company town specific, let's say, or Broadway specific. Um, And it's just, it's a really lovely movie that surprised me. Uh, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda's direction uh, and overall handling of it is not less renty than I expected, but it's a little bit more nuanced and unexpected um, over over the course of the movie. Uh, Andrew Garfield is really amazing. Um, Robin DeJesus is particularly great um, in, a, in a key supporting role, and it played really well all week. Uh, they did a lot of screenings for it. The cast was out and about, and um, I think it's, it's an interesting contender because, as we've been talking about, Netflix has a lot, but I think this one should, should not be underestimated because it has a lot of appeal to the biggest branch in the Academy. And uh, Richard, maybe you were the, the skeptic I was looking toward uh, on this one because you know a lot about musicals and I feel like you're always the one who I'm like, okay, wait, is it actually a, a good musical or, um, or is it just hype? And you really liked it too, right? I did. Yeah. Katie, you and I were joking uh, before recording that I I went to go see the first preview of Company, the Broadway revival. Well, it was a London one. And anyway, every gay man in New York was there (laughs) pretty much. And (laughs) I talked to at least one of them uh, pretty effusively about Tick, Tick, Boom. And he was kind of predisposed to like it. But another friend of mine who is kind of a little more hard hearted, let's say, about uh, big sentimental musicals also loved it. I have heard from nobody at this point who hasn't enjoyed it to some extent, which I think is a really interesting sort of broad appeal sign. Um, and I'm one of those people. I thought it was it was much better than I thought it was going to be. And it, that's not to say anything about like who, which talent is involved. I mean, they've all done good stuff in the past, yeah. but I just some kind of something about the combination of it made me a little leery about how it was going to handle doing a Tick, Tick, Boom musical, but also doing kind of a Jonathan Larson biopic and a Rent origin story and all that. And I think it's just very well balanced. It's a really shrewdly made movie that also doesn't really, that shrewdness doesn't get in the way of its just big, broad sentiment. And, you know, I cried in the way I wanted to and felt uplifted and kind of encouraged about creativity. And it, yeah, it's it's really kind of a, a home run. Yeah. It's interesting because I think that is a movie that a lot of people are going into a little skeptical or um, nervous about being disappointed. And I think it's really going to serve that film well, because it really does exceed um, those expectations. And I, I had a similar thing with King Richard. I feel like I went in sort of expecting mm. a standard sports movie, and it ended up being much more than that. So it's interesting to see these films that are kind of uh, succeeding so much because they are doing are, are a lot better than people have are expecting. Yeah, I think the Rent question of it um, really does benefit this movie because Rent, it was, you know, a huge touchstone for so many people, um, many of them around our age. Um, and the movie adaptation was uh, somewhat of a disappointment. And But I think Tick, Tick, Boom is more than like Rent again. It has almost more depth to it, I think, because you have this one central character who's trying to achieve his artistic dreams. And we know that he did. And we know that he had this huge contribution to musical theater. So it's not like, you know, Roger trying to write like a mediocre rock song like it. <laughs> It's, it's much more powerful than that, I think. 
think. Um, and Andrew Garfield at the center of it. I think it's just really hard to understate how or hard to overstate how powerful he is in this. Like he's just really wonderful and he's been wonderful in a lot of different things. He got his only Oscar nomination for Hacksaw Ridge, which is one of the less wonderful things that he's done. But I'm just so excited to kind of see him move into this period of his life. And if he is, in fact, in the next Spider-Man, um, which I think he is, I don't know for sure, but I think he is. Um, <laughs> it's a very interesting fall for him and that combination of things. And Tammy Faye out there, too. I think also we were talking about you know the activation of the best musical thing. Somewhere in that prophecy is Vanessa Hudgens is in a Best Picture nominee at the Oscars, right? <laughs> She's really good she in this is. movie. She is. And yeah. she gets just enough to do. I was kind of worried that she would be a bit sidelined um, because there's also Alexander Shipp's character mm-hmm. um, taking up some of the, the female singing parts. But like she really makes an impression. She's done Mimi at the Hollywood Bowl, I believe, in, in a like a short kind of concert run of Rent. Um, so she has experience with Jonathan Larson's material. And yeah, um, it's it's good for everyone involved, pretty much, which how often can you say that? Yeah. Yeah, Vanessa Hudgens also did the Rent Live. Uh, yes, so, that's what I was trying to think of. So if she if she's if she's in a Jonathan Larson uh, musical, she's she's going to do well. That's what we've learned. Her hair looks <laughs> unbelievable in this movie, which is not the important thing, but her hair looks. And her, her I mis- also <laughs> was thinking that the whole time she <laughs> was on screen. <laughs> and her main number is so much fun. Uh, it's one. Of, it was one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, yeah, very, um, very like they both reach for the gun in Chicago. That and number, which totally. is really fun. Um, I think the Limawal Miranda part of it is going to be really interesting to think about because he's been he's had a huge year kind of quietly, though, because In the Heights comes out. and We've talked about how it kind of uh, underperformed a lot of ways. He had two animated musicals come out this year, Vivo, which was uh, supposed to be a Sony release, I think, and is on Netflix. And it's pretty cute, I think. And then Encanto coming later. Um, but I think for someone who was absolutely everywhere for a long time and then I think intentionally scaled back, is not not on Twitter every day, um, for him to come back with this as a director, a movie that he's not really in, he's got a small role in it, but I think it's a really good step for him. And I think his talent is, you know, continuing to expand at a point where I think many people were like, all right, he's the Hamilton guy. He's not that good, but he's he really does a good job with this. I think we we could talk about this with the adapted screenplay race when we get into it, but I do find it fascinating that Netflix has three debuts from very well-known people that have really surprised people in passing The Lost Daughter and this. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's it's a weird recurring theme of their season, um, and each exceeded expectations in their own way. And I think particularly with this one, Lin-Manuel being such a, having idolized Jonathan Larson, um, and he credits him with getting into musical theater in the first place, um, the way he was able to interpret that and and show some restraint at times in, in telling his story and, and make leave room for nuance was I was really impressed by the whole the whole thing he did with it. I can't wait to hear him and Maggie Gyllenhaal talk to each other about uh, their their road to directing. Um, Okay, yeah, we do want to talk about screenplays, but let's continue on the the AFI premieres beat. Because speaking of King Richard, like you were saying, Rebecca, uh, it premiered, I guess it premiered AFI. It feels like it's played everywhere on Earth, but also is still premiering. And it will be on HBO Max soon. Um, But David, you were at the after party for that premiere. Um, I assume King Richard is continuing to uh, charm everybody who encounters it, right? Yes, I also went to a SAG screening of King Richard uh, for unrelated reasons. Did you join SAG, David, and didn't tell us? <laughs> I, I might be on the nominating committee. Um, no comment. <laughs> uh, my credits are slowly building up now. Um, but it, it, that was another one that played extremely well. Um, and then I did go to the, the party for that film, and it's just wild to be in a room with 
Will Smith and the Williams sisters. And um, the star power really showcases one aspect, one advantage, sorry, of this film in, in terms of its best picture campaign is it's just so many faces that are so iconic um, coming together for a movie that people really like. Uh, and that's yeah. not to be underestimated. And I really felt that this past week. Yeah, I think anytime um, Hollywood gets a visit from stars of another yeah. field, it 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 helps during award season. So, the you know, the way they decide to bring out Serena and Venus, I think, will be really smart and, uh, for them. Because, yeah, I mean, Hollywood people just love seeing a an, an athlete or a, a musician or someone just dropping by a party. I, I just like elevate. That's it so to new funny. Level. <laughs> Imagine people just being like dumbstruck by like Leonardo DiCaprio, like cannot believe he's in the same room as Billie Eilish. And it, but yeah. it's totally true. You see that yeah. happen plenty. We used to get really excited in college when someone who wasn't a theater major would show up on audition for a play and they were just like the new exotic <laughs> thing if they got cast. Same <laughs> What's thing. your world like? Tell us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and last week, I hinted that Rebecca had a piece on Swan Song, which was also premiering AFI Fest. Um, and that is up now. You can read about kind of the making of that film. And I saw it as well. Um, I was kind of seeing tweets from the premiere where, you know, the whole room is in tears, which is, you know, this movie really is a solid tearjerker, perhaps more than anything else this season. Um, and Rebecca, you and I, I think, have both been enthusiastic about Mahershala Ali's performance. I, after the AFI premiere, do you think he's in a good spot? Yeah, I mean, he... I'm really hopeful that, you know, people will appreciate this performance because it is so good and so difficult because he is playing two versions of his character um, opposite each other. And and I just think he's so talented and it's such a deep performance, which I'm sure is what led to all the tears at the screening. You know, the film is Apple and they're, I think, still figuring out their awards uh, season strategy. So I just hope it doesn't get lost because it's a really special performance that I will probably be stumping for every week on this podcast. <laughs> I had to kind of chase publicists for even any screening info about that, you know? And it's like, if you have this big Mahershala Ali performance, you know, like... Why, I yeah. don't know. It's it, they're kind of. It's funny that it's sort of arriving very late and sort of unheralded. Um, and there was another movie with Udo Kier called Swan Song that came out n- just a few months ago. So maybe there's <laughs> a, a branding problem as well. Not that t- tons of people saw the Udo Kier movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean you know between that and Coda, which I also really really loved, I just hope Apple can can figure out a strategy that that works because I think they do have some strong performances to show off this season. Talk about tearjerker and Coda, like that's mm-hmm. a that's a powerful double feature between the two of them. I can see Swansong playing well at home, though. Um, you know, if, for people who have Apple TV and know that there are movies on it, which is, I think, always a question. Um, <laughs> it'll be out December seventeenth. Like it's it's a movie that I think a wide range of you know family members generation generationally could watch. I've been thinking the same thing about King Richard on HBO Max next week. Like if you're at home with your parents, like that is a movie mm-hmm. every single person can put on. So, you know, we're, we're right now we're in the period where everyone's getting out and going to screenings. And then over the holidays, everyone gets their links and their, their discs and kind of hunkers down. So it's interesting to see what takes off in that period. There are going to be some heartbreakers in Best Actor, for sure. There are just too many, too many big contenders there. And um, once Precursor noms start rolling in, there will be some, you know, people who are left out of the conversation who maybe we weren't expecting. And conversely, like, there's a lot of great performances here and some we may not be giving uh, enough of a shot uh, may have more of one than we think. I mean, Garfield's definitely in, right? Like, I think Garfield is in. I, I do think the movie's playing well enough and he's, it's just such a moment for him. I would be surprised if he didn't make it in. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, one last L.A. premiere to talk about before we um, dive into screenplays. Uh, Being the Ricardos played on Saturday in L.A. It, it wasn't part of AFI Fest, right? It was just a premiere. David Underbrecken, do you guys remember? It was a, I think it was like a more of a tastemaker screening. Um, okay. So just starting to get it out to, to, to people who will tweet things about it after they see it. <laughs> well, lots of people did. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a SAG screening as well, I should, okay. I should add. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, and then everyone who was in the room, which is, does not include any of us, unfortunately, but it just played really well to the room, according to everyone who was there. Um, I think it's actually not as much in the Best Actor race, but, you know, Nicole Kidman was getting her share of attention for it, and, you know, playing a very famous real person has worked out well in many a uh, an actress race. Um, I think that I, I think in, as opposed to best actor I think actress is fuzzy enough where you could see her popping in there um but I mean I was kind of wondering if being the Ricardos was going to be a significant contender and it seems like after this weekend it's it's right in there right yeah I mean Rebecca and I have seen um saw possibly an earlier cut of the movie so um we'll have to see um the finished version before fully commenting but I, yeah. I am waiting for reviews on this one and a more a, bro- a broader reaction um i remain a little bit skeptical about about its chances overall does it feel kind of like those like marvel premieres where like hours later everyone's raving and then like two days later there's the second wave of uh more measured takes not unlike that okay <laughs> i do think also because it is a movie about making a tv show it just plays really well to industry yeah audiences you know mm-hmm. and there's a lot of that language of being in a writer's room that you know people just eat up um so yeah i mean as we're saying that i think that was a a very friendly audience for that movie um and it's nicole kidman you know i mean and jk simmons and you know these are actors that actors love to watch so uh i'm definitely waiting to see more reactions as well and and to your earlier point rebecca about going into say king richard or tick tick boom with lower expectations there was a lot of really negative buzz around Nicole Kidman, specifically her casting in this movie, which Rebecca and I knew uh, that was pretty unwarranted having seen um, something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would guess that people were just pleasantly surprised that she's she's not bad in the movie at all. Um, and sometimes that can influence a general That's reaction. what Nicole was telling... <laughs> that's what Nicole was telling Kirsten Dunst. She was like, you know, that was me playing Lucy, right? <laughs> I mean, the trailers that have come out, it's a, it's a really impressive feat. And I think every year we kind of struggle with like, well, they look and sound a lot like this famous person. But is that like what does that make it a performance like in, in this could be another interesting place to get into that. Although she's she's done really well playing real people in the past. So doubting her might be foolish. I think also whatever you might think about Sorkin, when the right actor just tucks into his kind of verbosity, it really registers for people, you know, yeah. like. Um, it, you know, maybe it didn't work for Chastain and Molly's game, but like, you know, I, I think Nicole Kidman has a bit higher profile than that. And, um, I don't know, I'm seeing it tonight. I'm all of a sudden excited for it in a way that I hadn't been before. I really hope Nina Arianda gets, uh, some attention for supporting actress. I think she's the real standout of this movie and deserves it. Uh, well, I was a huge fan of Chicago seven, um, which didn't necessarily work for everybody. So I'm ready. Um, well, we're talking about Sorkin, so let's go to screenplays. <laughs> he is in the original screenplay category, which is the thinner one this year, while still having plenty going on in there. But I think when we get to Adapted, uh, we might talk about why that's a lot more competitive. Um, but really, you know, if you look at the the earlier predictions, it's uh, him and PTA up there elbow to elbow against each other. Um, but I think that the category gets more interesting maybe when you look beyond the big names. So what, uh, Rebecca, of the original screenplay people, what are you most interested by? 
Well, guys, I'm going to bring up Belfast again <laughs> because I haven't done it yet. And we're however many minutes into this uh, podcast. Um, but, you know, it, it like I think we actually don't talk about it that much because it's so clearly in in the sort of top front runner group uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of these categories. But um, I do think it has a chance. You know, Kenneth Branagh wrote the screenplay um, along with directing it and and. And then I would say the other, it feels sort of like a lock to me, maybe, is uh, King Richard, because, again, it's it's playing really well, very wide. So I do think it has a strong chance to get in for screenplay as well. And it's very talky, King it's Richard. Very talky. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, I just want to say, Rebecca, I hope that Kenneth Branagh returns your family to you now that you have held up your end of the bargain. They're <laughs> um, having a great time with Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, He's a joy to yeah. be around. Yeah. He's reciting Shakespeare. <laughs> um, Licorice Pizza is interesting. I reviewed it this week, and I think I was a little bit cooler on it than mm, some of my critic colleagues were. But as a screenplay... It's very meandering and it kind of sort of comes to a conclusion at the end, but it's really sort of a mood piece. And I just wonder, I mean, I guess the writers are the ones who are nominating for, right? Like, it's not like the, the whole Academy voting on it yeah. first. Yeah. So, like, maybe they'll, I, I guess I could still see them appreciating the structure of it or the sort of lack of structure or deceptive lack of structure. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I see it going all the way to the win just because it it doesn't quite tell a story in the traditional sense in the way that some of these other ones we're talking about do. I think it will. (laughs) I I, uh, polite disagree. I I do think that the movie is really well positioned because as Rebecca mentioned, you have Belfast and King Richard here, which I think don't necessarily pop for their screenplays. They would get in as overall best picture contenders. And I do think they're at least near locks to be nominated here. Um, PTA has has not won in eight nominations. Uh, the film right now is at a hundred on Rotten Tomatoes and ninety five on Metacritic, so it, it's going to stand as one of his more overall um, best reviewed films. And, and I think it it is worth mentioning that the writers branch particularly has really gravitated toward his work. They nominated the Inherent Vice screenplay, even though that was very much not an Academy movie. Um, and I think this one will play more broadly than most any of his other films. Um, it just feels like there is a path there. I do agree, Richard, that the script itself is is not necessarily one you would think of as, as an obvious kind of screenplay winner, but I do think it's overall accessibility. It's really funny. Uh, it's really heartfelt. Um, and the, the combination of that and the narrative he has going into it and the shape of the category, I do think he has a, a clear lane. I don't think it's sewn up yet, but he would be my prediction right now. And, and most crucially, maybe it appeals to nostalgia. You know, yes. which like, you know, for 50 somethings now, I guess it would be like, they're like oh, I remember California in 1973. You know, I, it, it does have that kind of tang to it that um, clearly, if you know, there's a lot of nostalgic stuff kind of in, the, you know, in the running already with Ricardo's and Belfast and all that, like people like that kind of thing. And, and so and also the he's due kind of narrative will help. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that he Paul Thomas Anderson does not have an Oscar will feel egregious at some point. Maybe this is the year that it does. I mean, I think original screenplay has historically been the place for the kind of like odd duck in there. Um, you know, you think of like the indies that wouldn't get nominated for Best Picture. And the Academy has changed a lot over the years. And I don't think there's anything that really fits that bill this year. But I am rooting hard for Mass, um, mm. written and directed by Frank Kranz, previous uh, guest on this show. Um, it does seem like the kind of like low-key, small movie that could work really hard to get a nomination here and, and deserve the attention that it gets. Um, any other any other um, kind of wild cards you guys are looking towards? 
I'm hoping Mike Mills gets in for Come On, Come On. Um, is that a wild card at this point? I guess it is. I think if you have Belfast and King Richard and also Adam McKay is not not to be underestimated for at least screenplay. None of us have seen Don't Look Up yet, but uh, that's screens Thursday. The, the embargo, social embargo for that will be up, I guess, as of this recording being up, but but we, we have not seen it yet. Um, so that's one to look out for. Um, and then you have... People like Sorkin and even Wes Anderson, that movie did pretty well in theaters and and, and the writer's branch likes him a lot. So um, it's not a lock. I would like to think that he he will find a way in, but that movie is playing a little under the radar right now. Do we think that Parallel Mothers, Almodovar, like has a chance? Because, I, you know, I, I've seen it predicted here and there, um, obviously more for Penelope Cruz's performance. But like, I don't know, maybe they could throw a foreign one into the mix. Yeah, I think that and a hero are both in the mix for Parallel Mothers is is an interesting case right now. I'm struggling to get a sense of exactly how it's playing um, beyond getting you know being a critical hit. Um, It's it's had a really gradual rollout from Sony Classics, but they really believe in it, Um, and I think they they really want it to be an across the board player. But I don't know if I've quite seen that yet. But we'll see. I do feel like Sony Classics. That's kind of their style, almost yes. like they they indeed sort of it is <laughs> quiet in the grass, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's the lion, and the and the and when they <laughs> they land on nomination, so it, it, yeah, and it's Anthony it Hopkins, for them. and suddenly he yeah. has a second Oscar, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely worked for them in the past, so I, I I wouldn't underestimate them as well, and I feel like my pick if if I could have one edition is uh, Bergman Island, but. I know mm-hmm. it's a, a long, long shot, but it just feel it feels like it was such a great script. So I that would be my vote. Come join my voting block at New York Film Critics Circle, Rebecca. We'll we'll we can make it <laughs> oh, happen. There. Okay, I'll move to New York for that. <laughs> yeah, establish residency for the week long <laughs> period that they require. Yeah, <laughs> um, go. So let's hop over to adapted. Where um, I mean, I don't know that it's more competitive. It just feels like this is a year of a bunch of really high-profile adaptations um, where you've got, as we mentioned, Power of the Dog, Tick, Tick, Boom, and Lost Daughter all com- and Passing all coming from Netflix, which is quite a combo. Um, Dune is in there. Uh, Nightmare Alley from Guillermo del Toro is in there. It's uh, Macbeth. They adapted Shakespeare, and it's like Kenneth Branagh for once. Um, and I don't know really what I would give the edge to at this point. It's, you know, it's early time to try to pick a winner of anything, but does it feel like anything has the edge? Power of the dog. Yeah. Power, power <laughs> yeah. of the dog. Yeah. So much so that I almost worry that because she, to me, is pretty clearly out front here, Jane Campion, does that at all hurt her in director? And I don't... That's, I don't yeah, that's what I I don't know too. the answer to it, uh, and I hope it doesn't, but we've seen these kinds of conversations pop up before where it's like, well, we know this person's winning here, and especially if it's not an across-the-board, like, best picture frontrunner, um, which, you know, maybe Power of the Dog will emerge as that, but um, right now... Uh, I think it's it's clearly up front here, which hopefully won't be a t- to its detriment otherwise. It feels like such a wasted opportunity, not wasted opportunity, a missed opportunity. Jane Campion has a screenplay Oscar. She would be the second woman to win Best Director. Like, that feels like such a compelling narrative to me that I hope it wouldn't trip people up. I mean, give her both, honestly. But if you're going to have to pick <laughs> one, like, director seems like it's just it's such the one to give her. Yeah. And you have... I think what Maggie Gyllenhaal did with Lost Daughter was pretty fascinating. Um, and Rebecca Hall with Passing, I should add, you know, both really rigorous, intense uh, adaptations of material that 
that's really nuanced and tricky and, and maybe tough to realize for the screen. And I think they both did a really fascinating job. Another one that we probably should talk about is West Side Story, which is adapted by Tony Kushner. Um, Heard of him. <laughs> who, who, who is not probably not to be underestimated here. Um, just to, but one other one that's sight unseen right now. Uh, yeah, speaking Kush- of the sorry, the, the champion thing, I just looked like you know, like Bong Joon Ho, one director and screenplay, twenty nineteen. Uh, Inaritu did it for Birdman, you know. So it, it it's not like it's been so long that someone has won both, you know. Yeah. Like it it can easily happen. Yeah. Um, Tony Kushner doesn't have an Oscar. I just feel the need to to point anytime I'm given a chance to talk about how the Oscars uh, treated Lincoln badly, I will um, because I love that movie. Um, I, West Side Story would be a, a it feels like a strange Oscar for Tony Kushner, but everyone wants him to have one, I assume. Um, I mean, where that one is is showing late after Thanksgiving, so we still have a little bit longer to live in that mystery, I guess. Isn't the rumor, Katie, that Peggy Siegel had something to do with Lincoln's Oscar? Sputter was out. she was she backing Argo that year? She she was not given Lincoln as a as a property for when she was doing her work in New York, and so she's like out of spite. The rumor is kind of helped or tried to sink it. I don't know if yeah. she was actually that powerful. That's probably a story coming from her, but <laughs> <laughs> that does that does seem about right. And David, when you were talking about tricky adaptations um, for. Uh, the Lost Daughter and Passing. I was also thinking about Dune, which I mm-hmm. think got its share of knocks for being half of a book, but w- does seem like an incredibly difficult adaptation, like one that has stymied many people in the past. And it doesn't seem like the most obvious screenplay nominee because it's got so much else going for it, but I would really like to see it in here. Yeah, I would too. And I, I think that because it, it's considered such an uh, not an unfilmable book, but a book that's extremely difficult to thoroughly adapt. Uh, and Denis mostly got credit for doing that. Um, it's definitely in the conversation. It, it just to me, it just depends on how stuff like Nightmare Alley and West Side Story um, play, because those are potential overall best picture players that like where you have King Richard and Belfast on the original side could mm-hmm. kind of get grouped in here with all these really interesting, um, slightly smaller movies, because we also have stuff like the humans, uh, from a 24, which, uh, is not going to be the most popular movie, but I think is a really like really delicate transition from stage to screen there. And, and one that, Maybe we'll get discussed a little bit here. Um, so you have a, lo- a mix of big and small in a lot of cases. I think Dune, to me, I feel like it has a chance because you have to remember it's the writers voting. And I think a lot of them would probably think, how would I have adapted that book? Oh, I could not have adapted that book. So, yeah. you know, that gives them sort of a, a, an incentive to, to you know, respect what was done with it. Um, the other one I'm kind of curious about is Macbeth. You know, I, I think... People feel how they feel about the movie, but, you know, it is adapting Shakespeare and it's Joel Cohen, obviously. So I do wonder if if that's going to get some momentum down the line. And people are really familiar with that IP, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and and Co- we mentioned Coda, right? That, that that has a pretty, I think, strong mm. shot of getting a nomination here. Yeah, I think yeah. it's another one that... that... Yeah. Uh, we had a we had a question from Rory on subtext about Macbeth saying we didn't mention it at all on the previous episode and asked if the scene was running out on that. It does feel in screenplay and kind of elsewhere. I think it's a that's a big question mark because it premiered at New York Film Festival and has been kind of hanging out in the ether until then. But um, it could be primed for a resurgence. I, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen with it next. Yeah, I think it's about keeping it 
in the conversation, you know, that we're talking about actors who don't do a lot of press and uh, a director that doesn't do a lot of press. So I, I think it'll be a, a challenge to keep it uh, relevant. Yeah, I think it's going to yeah. be a really tough road for that movie uh, in the awards conversation, even to Denzel Washington, who I think is pretty safe for a nom. But as that category keeps getting more and more competitive, um, yeah, he may he may be one of those people who we're surprised to see left off of some some lists in the coming months. Um, to dive into subtext again and back on the screenplays topic, because uh, Tess asked us about uh, wild cards that we would want to look out for. And we talked about some over an original, um, but she mentioned Zola and The Green Knight, which are two screenplays I would just be thrilled to see show up and adapted. Um, I think both of them have a pretty long road ahead. Um, Zola feels like it it should come back and be talked about at some point. It's got such a pedigree with Jeremy O'Harris writing that script. Do you guys think that's possible? Well, it popped up at Gotham's, right? Yeah. Um, got some nominations there. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that the, I would look at that for, for critics' prizes and things like that and, and Spirit Awards, whatnot. Um, I don't know if that will translate into... I think just not enough people saw that movie, you know, and A24 has other priorities at this point. Um, so, yeah, I'd be curious. Now I want to see a movie called Zola and the Green Knight. <laughs> I would uh I would watch that for sure. <laughs> hey everybody, I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor and I'm filmmaker Charles Hood and we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now we're about to launch our first ever universe expanding miniseries. That's right, get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Okay, to jump to the interview portion of the show, uh, first, let's hear from David, who talked to Cody Spent-McPhee, who is in The Power of the Dog, a movie we keep talking about and will keep talking about. And he's really wonderful in it. So, David, um, can you tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear? Uh, we'll hear from him at the near end of a months-long press tour for this movie, who's a little exhausted, but also kind of thrilled by it and... Um, he, yeah, it was it was really interesting to catch him at, at this moment because the movie has been 
touring literally the world nonstop since the beginning of September. Um, and he's been right there the whole time. And uh, this is a new experience for him for sure. And I think rightly getting uh, a lot of Oscar buzz for it. All right, let's hear that interview. I love your, your performance in this film and I've been excited to talk to you about it. And it's interesting because I saw the film before, uh, you know, people were allowed to talk about it. And even after that, it's still, your role particularly is a hard one to talk about because so much of the film hinges on reveals with the character that, you know, the film is finally just coming out, but, you know, most people have not seen it yet. How have yes. you found talking about it? Good question, man. Thank you. Because like, yeah, a lot of people will lead in with like, describe your character and it. It's the hardest thing ever to do um, without giving away too much. But also, you know, we're marketing here. You have to, you have to, you know, anchor people in or hook them in with with why the story is so beautiful and why your character is so interesting and intriguing. It's really a hard task um, with Peter because he has so much that's internalized and so much that you don't want to give away, um, and a great deal of of his character arc has to do with judgments about him initially and, and what they end up uh, resolving themselves to be. So yeah, you have to be very kind of tiptoe around um, talking about him, but, but yeah, I think that in, in and of itself is intriguing and, and, you know, it makes people want to want to check it out. Yeah. Well, how did, I mean, in, in the broadest way, how did Peter strike you? before you auditioned, before you talked about it with anyone, how did he kind of immediately come off the page to you? I feel as if like while I'm reading it, in the best way I can, I try and like represent what the audience's journey will be on it. Um, I'm going through it, um, watching it. And just a lot of these kind of judgments arise with with Peter and, and for um, Phil as well. And it's just a lot in how they initially carry themselves and and respond to other uh, you know characters but i just love the way that by the end of the movie it forces you to kind of recontextualize and reconsider everything that you initially thought about the movie and about the characters uh, i absolutely love movies like that and i always have wanted to be a part of one that is deserving of its twist um i can't stand movies that just you know pull the rug out from underneath you at the end and it's not deserved yeah. Uh, so this, this is all of that. It was, it was, um, very exciting to, to read, uh, in consideration of it and, and to be considered. And then the audition process was just, it was really lovely because uh, I went into it thinking it was a, uh, just a conversation, really a general meeting, which I think it was. And I think Jane just loves to put people on the spot. Um, that's my idea that I took away from it, but I really loved it because it gave me a, a great sense of freedom because she just asked me to uplift Peter into the room and so she could explore him and, and ask questions from my perspective, from what, from what I took from the script and my adaption of him, I guess. And then I think we did a cold read as well. So it was all very on the spot. It was all improv, but at the same time, that that is a lot more forgiving in many ways than the traditional kind of cattle call casting auditions in LA where you have to prepare 16 pages and do it in like two minutes in front of, you know, people that you really admire. Right. Um, well, I spoke with Jane about, about you and she, she told me that when you walked in, she knew you were better than Peter. Uh, and she said better than the boy in the book is how she phrased it, which is, well 
that's high praise, but it's also probably a high bar to clear <laughs> and deliver. Right. right. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what I do have to say is that when it comes to the portrayal of a character, obviously a lot is left to chance and the perfect storm of who you are and how your parallels uh, relate to the character itself. So there's a lot that is not of my doing, but at the same time, um, I think in, in the things that I expressed about him and the reasons why I think I understood and loved him so much just made sense and, and uh, correlated with, you know, uh, the, the understanding that Jane had of him, which was a really beautiful feeling. In terms of the, the fact that he existed both on the page and in the book, in the, on the script and in the book, I should say, um, from the road to this with some stuff in between, you've acted in quite a few adaptations of, you know, pretty highly regarded books. Um, do you like to work off of both the script and the book? Has it evolved for you? What was it like with this particular project? Actually, yeah, from the first movie I did called Romulus, My Father, that was an adaption of a true story. Then we went on to the road, and that has definitely been a reoccurring theme. Um, and since, you know, my father taught me everything I know in terms of the foundation of, of uh, my approach in acting, um, we worked the the book rigorously and and drained it of everything it was worth you know back in back in my early days so that's something that i i continue today and i think i mean obviously that's a no-brainer because uh for an actor for me personally i tend to fill in the blanks uh for things that aren't provided in the script um but of course it's always better if you have some kind of source material and especially when it's a book you can't always fit everything in the book into the movie just for timing reasons. So it's cool to have that there in your artillery to kind of bounce off of because there's a lot of things in there that you can kind of hide within yourself or find inspiration or influence from um, that the audience doesn't have to know but can help a great deal with your character. It's interesting too because to an extent the book also has... The, the same mysteries as the movie as you're reading it. So it's, it kind of gives you a different way of trying to figure out what's going on with, with Peter and, and the whole story, really. Definitely. There's this layer of ambiguity across the whole script and the book. And I guess it's led by this sense of like impending doom that keeps you on the edge of your seat. But somehow you find yourself on the edge of your seat while it, it is a, a patient and slow kind of burn. Um, which I think is very rare to find. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the genius of the book, but also in the adaption of, of Jane Campion. Can you talk about some of the techniques you employed for this? I, I saw Jane introduce you to the Alexander method, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah, I mean, my, my dad had actually introduced me to elements of the Alexander technique when I was, you know, from the get-go, when I was like uh-huh. eight years old. Um, but it was just portions of, of all of, of these different versions of classical training that he had experienced and passed on to me. And he passed on to me the, the portions in which he felt were most valuable. So I've always had these tools there and I've always applied them, but I really loved how Jane challenged me and invited me to take them to their most extent, to commit to them completely, I guess. And so instead of just like, you know, writing and studying things in a journal, I completely embodied the idea that, uh, you know, a fox might be similar in its characteristics to Peter. So, you know, crawling around on the ground and things like that. 
um, I think really help you discover more. And then I guess just rediscovering things that you don't really think about because you, you did them so long ago, like a dialect coach. Uh, I had to work with many of them when I was younger, obviously being Australian and, you know, doing American and Scottish, Irish, German roles. And it's something I pick up quite quickly, but to revisit it, it, it's, it's not a bad thing. You know, I think we're always a student of our craft, so it's healthy and it's rewarding to step out of your comfort zone. And that's what she enforced, forced me to do. What was that like? Um, in the context of the ensemble, because I know Benedict got to try something a little bit new in terms of going more method. And, and you have other actors there who have been working for a long time who have their own uh, styles. So, so for you, um, was there a kind of give and take there? What was that like? I find that she challenged everyone. And that's even outside of actors like uh, Ari Wagner, the cinematographer. Um, you know, we've had discussions now that we've been going on this press tour uh, and I found that she was challenged in, in the same ways, um, which is really cool to, to find that, that Jane has that in her to, you know, adapt to people and find where they can unleash their potential that, that, that bit further, you know, um, or, or find areas that they haven't explored in themselves or need to re-explore. Uh, I, I find that fascinating. It's almost as if we all went through a Jane Campion boot camp. Um, <laughs> But yeah, they were all very different methods. You know, Benedict took on the actual method approach. I'm not really sure what Kirsten had done with her. Uh, I think one of the most important parts is anything that we were challenged in taking up was a very intimate thing. You know, it was it was when we would have one-on-one -on -one time with Jane that we would have the freedom to to explore such places. So I think that's an important part of it. So, so beyond this, the prep and, and into the actual performance, can you speak to anything that felt for you new or, or maybe a little bit more daring in terms of playing to the camera and, and playing Peter? Yeah, I would say um, specifically the body movement uh, specialist that I worked with, not the Alexander Technique one, but there was a following one that I had worked with in New Zealand. And that was to really just kind of rewire my my habits and my tendencies you know physically you know the way that I walk the way that I stand the way that I run and to completely embody the ideas and the essence of Peter uh, into my physicality which of course was something that I was already going to do before but I don't think to the extent in which I discovered in actually working with someone that specializes in in that world there's a, a great sense of kind of humility I think in that task and in collaborating with someone else and, and um, letting them kind of guide you. And, and I think that really made Peter who he is. And, and like I said, same goes for the dialect coach. Like it wasn't so much the American accent that we had to work on, but his lisp and, and what level did we want to do it at? Um, I would have originally done something that would have been a bit more downplayed, but uh Jane wanted me to take a bit more risk. And so it was just lovely to be able to know that I could trust Jane in being pushed in those ways and uh, just surrender and go on for the ride and enjoy it. And to find how rewarding that was in the end is, is the most fulfilling part. Mm -hmm. Did you think about the, the reveals of the film in the context of the way you played it, like having certain things pay off going in, you know, as we're watching deeper into the film? 
Yeah, we have conversations about it, but I think the beauty of working with Jane is that her mind as a director, that's, I mean, she took it upon herself. That, that's her job to direct us in that way, you know. Um, I'm someone as just like the intellectual and I, I, I don't know, I rationally like to plan things out and think of them from the third person and objectively, subjectively, she just kind of erased all that from me and said that that was her part to do and I just had to focus on the moment and on Peter, um, which is something I'm sure my dad could agree with. I guess over the years I've let my own uh, mind and judgments come into the play a bit more. But, yeah, she let me, I guess, if anything, not think about those things um, to where before I would have explored those ideas. I would have thought, is the audience picking up what we're leaving? It was such a relief to just let all of that go, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you said that this role feels a bit like um, a paying off for everything you've been working toward in your career. Um, can you speak to that a little bit in terms of what this particular project means for you and and the journey you've been on so far and, and where you can go from here? Yeah, um, I mean, it's been a really personal journey for me. My career goes hand in hand with my life because I feel, you know, my family had to sacrifice a lot to to achieve you know what we have and uh we came from just a very i guess quote unquote normal lifestyle in melbourne australia and uh it was just the happenstance of my dad asking me if i wanted to do acting for fun um that, that got me here today i'm really blessed that you know in the beginning early stages of my journey i got to got to work so closely with my dad and um, every time I work on any character, I hear the echo of his, you know, technique and process, you know, working with me as I've adopted it now. And um, I just guess getting to this point uh, to, to be able to work with someone like Jane and the whole ensemble and to do uh, an adaption of a story that is a real icon in, in uh, American literature, um, it's very special, but mainly just that, that response, that that warm response that has been so consistent throughout all of the festivals and uh you know i trust that it will be internationally it's it's lovely and yeah it's just a real kind of landmark achievement in terms it just forces me to kind of look back on on everything on, on why this is so special to me and how i got here um and in, and in many ways this really is just the beginning for me you know i think now people are recognizing me for what I'm worth and, and what I'm capable of. And um, it's, it's just a really humbling feeling. And yeah. Absolutely. What, what are some, as, as you're looking back, are there other past roles uh, that you look at now and you say that made me a better actor or that was a, another major moment for me? I mean, weirdly, a lot of the things in my early, early career, like Romulus, my father, mm-hmm. um, to, be, to look back and see like at eight years old, I was dealing with such heavy subjects um, and they weren't just fabricated, but they were based on real life events. And I remember, you know, meeting the guy that, that I played, uh, Raymond, um, who grew up to be a philosopher. And, you know, I expressed the narrative of, of his life as a young person. Um, those are such meaningful moments to me. And then, of course, The Road as well, working with Viggo Mortensen. I think he set the bar for, I don't really look up to actors a lot, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I feel I'm, I'm very different to, to many of them. And I think it has a lot to do in terms of just how I was introduced 
to the to the industry and what is now my career. But if, if there was any I look up to and admire, it's it's Viggo Mortensen, and I mean that more so for how he carries himself off screen and uh, how he participates in the industry and how he's still respected, but he's kind of under the radar in many ways. Um, that just has, has profoundly affected me and, and I will always remember my, my journey with him. And I guess Matt Reeves as well. Another, I guess it was all of those in a line. Romulus, my father, the road, and Matt, uh, let me in was right after that. Yep. And um, that film overall, which is very cool, the, the setting um, and, and another adaption of a book. But I just very I grew very close with Matt Reeves and he kind of let me into his world and and I took on a lot in terms of just like being a sponge and watching how he does what he does as a director and as a filmmaker. And that's, I think, the first time I felt really inspired to be able to, to do my own stuff one day if I, if I want to go down that path. It's a great deal of stress <laughs> and a huge weight upon the shoulders if, if I've taken anything else away from it. But... Yeah, and I loved working with him, you know, again on something like Planet of the Apes, which is, of course, more of a franchise thing, but I think he did amazing justice to that story and made it very unique. So, yeah, many, many people I've worked with, most of them, in fact, have played a huge part in in the development of who I am today and why I I love what I do so much. Mm -hmm. Having come of age in the industry in that way, and, and, you know, you said this marks a kind of a new beginning for you, do you feel more equipped given that to navigate that next stage and, and have, you know, having all that under your belt and, and having seen so many different kinds of actors and directors work? I guess so, but it's nothing I think of like really subjectively in that way, like in the same way, um, the nerves that I feel before I start a project, which I like to label as excitement and just being positive are the same nerves that I felt on the first day of, you know, Romulus, my father. Um, I think it's really important to remind yourself of the mind of innocence as it, it does things for the moment and it doesn't think of anything outside of that or in the future or the past. I think that's very important. But definitely, of course, the more wisdom that I acquire through experiences, the better uh, equipped I am um, for my future endeavors and possibly any other avenues that I might want to go down creatively um, to transmute from a hobby into a, a career. So yeah, definitely experience is, is, is huge. All right, Cody. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next. Those are all my questions for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good to see you again. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. 
You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash LittleGoldMen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash LittleGoldMen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Mubi.com slash LittleGoldMen. And finally, we'll hear the conversation that I had with James Samuel, who is the director of The Harder They Fall, the Western that is out on Netflix right now with this massive, almost entirely black cast. Um, And he just speaks really effusively about how long he's loved Westerns, how long he wanted to see a Western with someone who looked like him in it, and that kind of reclaimed the history of the Old West that did have a lot of people of color in it who were left out of traditional Westerns and the music in it and the actors. And um, we had a really fun conversation. So let's listen to that. Thank you so much for doing this. I know your big press push was a couple of weeks ago, so um, hopefully you're ready to get back in the the harder they fall mindset. I'm full, I never leave the harder they fall mindset <laughs> ever. Press, no press. I'm always talking. I've been talking about the harder they fall once since I was a kid, but a good fifteen years, yeah. months, and then ten years when I started sketching out what the um, film would be. You know, like I'm, I speak about the harder they fall all the time, and also. I love talking, so. Well, and like something like that doesn't leave you, you know, just because the movie's out doesn't mean that the the world of the film can leave your brain when it's been part of you for so long. Absolutely. And and it, you know, chances are it never will. It's such a, yeah. it's such a, um, for me, such a dynamite piece of work. And also I'm not, I'm not at all mature. Like when, you know, the, the mature way to be or the grown up way to be would be like, Yes, well, you know, when I made The Heart of a Fall, it was a, you know, an experience of such a... I ain't like that, man. I'm from the, I'm from the hood. I'm like, ooh, this film's amazing. So <laughs> you got to make like 50 more films than maybe you can feel <laughs> you can leave them behind. Yeah, and even then, and even then, you know, never grow up. You know yeah. what I mean? Some of my favourite directors, they still have all that energy. Like when you see Scorsese speaking about his movies, he still turns into like a kid and speaking about things in his fast kind of voice and it's film gives us life yeah no Scorsese is like the absolute best representation of how no no matter how old you get that like enthusiasm that brings you to movies does not have to go away doesn't have to go away doesn't have to go away uh Quinton's like that as well they both talk really fast too I wonder if that's a uh (laughs) if that's a coincidence uh uh but he's always energetic and it's really uh refreshing um, thing when people are are um, excited about their art, you know, and what yeah. they and what they create is a beautiful thing. I think it's something I we should to... all hold on to. Um, I don't mean to start at the ending, but you're talking about staying in the word of the heart of they fall. In one other interview, you said you'd always thought of it thought of it as a three parter. Is that still in your head now that it's out in the world? The uh, the the further versions of it? Yeah, a hundred percent. I've always imagined the heart of they fall as like like a prequel and a sequel. Always like I've always been sketching out the stories of the stories of both, and then also just like the whole universe of of that side of the the West. You know the whole yeah. the whole universe of of um, not even the whole universe. Basically, the whole Old West, if you take away the narrow, white male, uh, centric stories we were given, then that means you, you have a whole universe of, of stories with women <laughs> of actual dominance, with people of colour, all races. <laughs> like, you have a whole genre. Basically, you have a genre where 90% of it is unexplored. So I'll always be going back to the Old West. I love it too much. I love it too much. And, you know, people think, um, 
they don't like westerns. Or a lot of people would a lot of people would say, "Oh man, the harder they fall." Such a dope movie, and I don't even like westerns. It shows that you do like westerns. You just haven't been given the vitamins and the echinacea and the stuff that you you needed. And then the Lord yeah. made James Samuel. <laughs> uh, I mean, I love, so I didn't grow up loving Westerns and then kind of learned to love them in my life. And I love what you have said about kind of growing up with them and they were part of the water and you really fell into them. But I can't imagine that there were a lot of kids growing up around you who also love Westerns. Were you always just on your own being like, no guys, these are great. And just trying to convince people to get on board. Well, the older I got, yeah. But not when I was a kid. When I was a kid, they were just on TV all the time. So you would just be watching yeah. them with everything else. They were, literally, mm-hmm. they were on television all the time. Now they were reruns and repeats, right? This is the TV shows. You know, because England is just obsessed with anything American. And has, yeah. England is obsessed with two cultures, Americans and Australians. Huh. Right? So we have Australian programming as if you would watch, you'd catch um, English television first thing in the morning and around 3.30, 4 p.m. And it's just Australian TV, Right? Home and Away, Neighbours, all of these um, soap operas. Yeah. So we, Heartbreak High, I remember I used to watch that before, uh, the, just after The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> That's a good combo. Yeah, with this guy that was kind of like a Heath Ledger dude, and he was, he was Australian. He wasn't Heath Ledger, but... My point yeah. is, um, when I was a kid, they were just always on TV. So everyone watched them, right? Yeah. You didn't have to watch them, but your parents were watching them. And if you're going to be kind of in the same room as your parents at any time you're going to be watching the westerns even something like little house on the prairie is a western yeah mm-hmm. right so so all of these um all of these things even uh the waltons is a western somewhat right but they were just more family oriented and things but like yeah. bonanza rawhide you know all these black and white things that were just on, on some champion the wonder horse the, the hollywood used to make uh more films about horses than they did about black people They'll give yep. a horse its own <laughs> TV show. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, black people wouldn't even get looking. But as I got older, you'd find less and less people that like Westerns. I still love them. But less and less people I'd find would like Westerns. And I think it's because of the content. Mm-hmm. Because of the, like, white male-centric you know, take the land from people ideology in a lot of them. Every woman subservient or prostitute, even white women, every woman is subservient or prostitute. There's no women of any power. If you look at Joan Collins, um, Joan Crawford, one of the greatest yeah. actors of all time. When she's in the Western, it's Johnny Guitar. It's still named after the man. This woman was like one of the biggest actors in the world. Yeah. But it's still named after a man. It's the man's story. And then, you know, but she's the person on the poster. But it says jo- John Crawford in Johnny Guitar. Like, Hollywood just could not give women any shine in those in that genre. And uh, they definitely wouldn't give any uh, person of colour any yeah. any um, human or humane narrative. So I think um, people just tune out of those things. They just, they just will never catch people. For whatever reason, the ground, the golden ground, the uh, dialogue, the standoffs, the... Everything would just attract the horses. Everything would just attract me about about a Western. But in my yearning for a broader landscape of storytelling, you know, I ended up just making my own. 
I love you talk about yearning for a broader landscape, which is like the theme of every Western is like wanting a more space and wanting to get out to some golden land. It's like uh, the, the theme of a Western was your life leading you to making a Western. Yeah, I was literally <laughs> experiencing that, watching those guys looking for yeah. their broader pastures. I'm like, can we get some broader yeah. pastures with the camera? Because yeah. if oh, you yell okay. cut, yeah, if, you, if the person yells cut and just turns to the left, you'll probably see a person of color. Or woman mm. with dom- with substance, with dominance. But as soon as they yell action, it's the craziest thing. It, yeah. They tied the, it in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's the craziest thing. More so than any other genre that Hollywood um, would uh, produce. Well, it's like the Western, it fell out of favor, like in the 60s and 70s when Hollywood starts, you know, expanding in some way. So it's like just in time when they might have put other people in Westerns, they decided to stop making them and it never got a chance to, to catch up. It, ne- it never got a chance to flurry. And then once in a while, Clint Eastwood would make a would make a, a western, you know, um, Pale Rider or, or Unforgiven. They'll be wicked, wicked, wicked movies. But again, they'll fall into the tropes of of um, the old west. I think every woman in Unforgiven is a prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's so that's just like, you know, in High Noon, like the most interesting female character in westerns and the classic ones is the woman who's a prostitute. And she's fascinating, but that's still her her role it's crazy it's the craziest thing like so when people when uh people i read that and james samuel's revisionist western or has reimagined the old i reimagined nothing hollywood reimagined the old west but i'm just giving them a broader um viewpoint of of what you know life was like but you also fictionalized it and like on yes. Western, all original Westerners too, you took these real people and you kind of said, here is a version of the story. These people are real, as it says in the beginning. Was there, was there ever a part of you that thought you would make something more historical or was it always going to be, here's my fictional, but emotionally true version? No way. I couldn't make something historical because then we'll only be speaking about one character. <laughs> like if I took the story of Bass Reeves, okay, but then no one will be speaking about Nat Love, Jim Beckwith, Bill Pickett, Stage Watch Mary, Gertrude Smith, Wiley Esco. We won't be speaking about none of these people. If I took the story of, of Nat Love, we won't be speaking about Bass Reeves, Stage Watch Mary. What I did was assemble them all like the Avengers. And and so we could be speaking about all of these um, characters. At no point did I want to make um, a historical biopic because I want to have all the things I love about Westerns in them. I love the genre of the Old West. Bank robberies, train robberies, jailbreaks. In The Heart of They Fall, I put, I don't think this has ever been done before. I put a train robbery and a jailbreak in the same scene. Why not? They have prisoners on trains? Why not? Exactly, right? So <laughs> I put a, a, a bank robbery, train robberies, jailbreaks. Like, I, I love this. I love this stuff. And I love all of those. Um, characters so much i can't choose which one to just you know make one story about i'll be i remember being on set and i'll be, and i'd look at both gangs i'm like this is amazing on one hand the quote-unquote good guys are who was the goodies in real life nat love bill pickett bass reeves jim beckwith cathay williams aka cuffy stagecoach mary on the flip side is the baddies people who are outlaws in real life even though everyone's outlaws in the film, but yeah. real dangerous people. Was Gertrude Smith, Cherokee Bill, Rufus Buck in the infamous Rufus Buck game? I guarantee you, we would never, ever, ever have seen a film with Rufus Buck in it. No one's been talking mm. about this character. If I'd have, if I'd have made, um, you know, a historical 
thing just isolated one character, one story. I, I needed to go, I needed to make the Western that was in my brain with all of the Barrington Levy on the score and the dub and all of the music embellishments. I needed to make a James Samuel Western, but I wanted everyone to talk about these characters. So I needed to assemble them like superheroes. And was there the feeling like you've worked so long to make this? Like if you only get one shot, you got to put it all out there in case you never get to, to make another Western after this? Uh, no, I mean, I never really thought thought like that. Only because, uh, only because Katie, like, I come from the hood. I'm going to make this movie and then I'm going to make more. Like my brain is so optimistic with that stuff. I'm going to make yeah. this movie. This movie's going to be dope. Then I'm going to go and make another one. Then I'm going to go and do a prequel. Then I'm going to go, like... <laughs> My brain's like... There's no plan B. There is no plan B. Like, this is who yeah. I am as a human human being. In fact, there's a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. Plan A, <laughs> make the hard way fall. Plan B, make the hard way fall. C, hard way fall. And D, hard way fall. I've got all the plans for the alphabet, but I'm making the hard way fall. Yeah, it's a first step in all of them. Yeah, if, if first step in, in all of them. I just love... Um, the movie too much and at no point through all the years of trying to get it made did I think I wouldn't get it made and at no point I was just working towards um completion and you just you know you don't realize how how much time has gone you're just kind of reconfiguring the stars so to speak to make the universe yeah. um obey your will when when I first had the idea I think Netflix was still sending us DVDs in the post yeah oh yeah I never gave any of those DVDs back Casey I <laughs> I remember, like, <laughs> I tried to um, rent another list. My account was just blocked. Like, <laughs> I hope they gave you your account back. Now you can uh, you can get some Netflix. Yeah, I don't think so. But what they did do was give me a huge budget to make the harder they fall. So, did they make up for it? After yeah, all? I think I think they've made up for it now. Well, what do you know about who's watching it on Netflix? You know, you had this, you've had film festival premieres. It's been in theaters. You get some box office, but a ton of people are seeing it on Netflix. Do you get any information on who it's big with? What kind of feedback do you get? I don't know. Like, we had one data call, and Tendo Nagenda, our um, exec, because you know the the, the um, people that that kind of are the bosses of Netflix are really behind this movie. Ted Sarandos, Scott Stuber. And Tendon Nagenda, um, who kind of like oversaw uh, and shepherded this production through. We have conversations with him. He said it was doing really well. It was number one globally a few um, a few days ago, like last I week. I remember that. And, um, and, you know, he said it's doing amazingly, amazingly well. When they start throwing figures around, my brain kind of goes goes to mush. I'm like, all right, are a lot of people watching it? He said, a lot of people watched it. I was like, job well done. And you get to see it with an audience in a theater and watch people connect with it, which is, you know, after the last year and a half, that's not to be taken for granted. Yeah, a few a few times. I watched it with people, like, a few times, and it was amazing. We had we had the opening night gala at London Film Festival, mm-hmm. which was, like, over 2,000 people. We had um, the first premiere back in L.A., from my understanding, which was over 1,000 people. It's amazing for me to yeah. get to experience the film and all the laughs and all and you see things you know this is my first feature so I th- see things that there's no way I would have known had I not watched it with a crowd <laughs> like jokes that work or dramatic bits that work or where the audience doesn't have a chance to breathe after like what like, happens to Jim Beckwith it's so quick because they go to war so yeah. I'm looking now with the audience I'm like wow this is amazing they haven't got a chance to breathe but they they can breathe 
when Cherokee Bill creeps up on Bill Pickett moments later. And they're like, <gasps> or when Bill Pickett pulls out his coin in both LA and the UK, Bill Pickett pulls out his coin and is like, I'll be damned. And the whole crowd go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Close shave. I'm like, really? <laughs> Wait till he kisses the coin. <laughs> Bang! <laughs> like, it's all that kind of stuff. I would not know the reaction of the crowd had I not been able to have a premiere. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk to you about the ending since, you know, you did a lot of press before the movie came out. And if you're good with, you know, some spoiler warning or whatever. But we did a, um, my colleague interviewed Giselle for a while and he talked about that big monologue he has at the end of the movie, which I think everyone watching that is like, well, hang on. Like he's at Giselle, but he needs like a big, big, big scene. And it comes in almost at the very end and that it wasn't in the script for him to cry in that scene and that he did it. I re- like, how did, how did that play out? What was that like for It was the most amazing thing because... Uh, my dad passed away when I was a kid, right? And the picture of the man in the mansion that is literally between them when they're talking is a painting of my father. Wow. And then they're, both characters are speaking about their dad and and, um, uh, and all of us have, have really unique father um, experiences, myself, Jonathan Majors and Idris Elba. And I think it was just all coming out. And Jonathan was in tears and Idris broke down in the scene as he's speaking or or Rufus Buck it was really a heavy heavy scene I just broke down in tears watching it and then after the scene we were all consoling each other in tears just all all three of us and the crew was crying and people in here and makeup that had the screens that had the you know the the feed they were crying uh, but they were pretty much offset it's it's great it was crazy like everyone was in in tears and it was a really really heavy scene. I remember the, fo- the following day, Idris had to um, come and do some um, reaction shots, you know, when he's looking through the window at Nat Love coming town. And he went, whoa, James, man, I'm exhausted. I was like, oh, you got, got enough sleep? He went, no, not physically. I'm emotionally exhausted. Yesterday was really heavy. It was really heavy, James. I went, I didn't, I didn't even know it was going to get that heavy, but it was heavy for all of us. It was a really, really beautiful um, thing. Yeah. And then the, the the ending, like the very ending, when you see him go out and see Stagecoach Mary, like it's not a triumphant moment. Like it's a very bittersweet ending. And she asks him, is the devil dead? And he says he doesn't know. And that that's, again, like turning the Western genre on its head in some way. It's not a clear cut ending. So that was, even though that scene turned out to be more emotional than maybe you expected, that was always the mood you wanted at the end. That like just emotional catharsis, but no, no good guy, bad guy in that ending. I wanted, wanted with The Harder Day 4 to employ all of the Western tropes and then to turn everything on their head. I've never seen a Western where the protagonist meets the antagonist and then they just both break down in tears. I've never seen that in the, yeah. in the West where, where, um, where the man is just crying and then the, the villain, quote-unquote, turns out to not be a villain, really. I killed your parents because they killed my parents. Rufus, um, Nat Love's father killed Rufus Buck's mother and father because a yeah. kid just looks at their parents with absolute trust. If that's the way you behave, you've killed the idea of whatever idea of a father figure Rufus Buck had as a kid. His father killed it. His father murdered his dad and his mum, much like what Ben Kenobi was saying to Luke about your father was killed by Darth Vader. Yeah. I mean, Star Wars is a Western, obviously. Like, <laughs> it's got all those tropes. Star Wars is a Western to the point where 
you know, I was talking about like the stereotypical um, things in in westerns, how they'll portray people of color. Like even in the spaghetti westerns, the Mexicans would be the most superhero with bullets. I've never met a Mexican with bullets down his chest. Yeah, every western. Yeah, and I still believe uh, Star Wars being a western, Chewbacca represents that stereotypical um, uh, stereotypical person of color that they'll show in those in those westerns. I've never seen a Mexican with bullets down both sides of his his um, yeah. his chest, big fat. Like, mm-hmm. like it's really. It, I, I think what and those weren't Hollywood movies, but I just think what um, we were fed as just women and people of color really damaged us and really damaged um, uh, the way we view each other. Which is why I wanted to have fun with with the Hard Day Fall. I wanted to swag out in all mm-hmm. in glorious Technicolor. I couldn't do that with just one biopic. I needed to, yeah. I needed to tell my own story. You know what I mean? But still make it yeah. real, realistic. You become what you kill. Have the cycle of violence. I'm killing him because he killed my parents. He killed my parents because he's my brother and they killed his. But you know, just the whole cycle of violence and and um, and all and put soul into something that could easily have been a shallow ending. I really wanted to put um, heart heart in it and tears. Is the devil yeah. dead? I don't know, because you just become Rufus Buck. So, you know, it's, it's more that kind of stuff. The, uh, the Western trope that I always liked when I was watching a lot of them is so many of them will be about trying to build a community. You know, it's about like the sheriff comes to town and he tries to get the outlaws out or they're trying to like build up a, a you know, a homestead somewhere else. And that is Rufus Buck's plot. And it's not revealed for like a good halfway through the movie. Like you don't know that that's what he's up to. Why was that something you locked into for Rufus Buck specifically? Because he's an outlaw, but he's he's working for the greater good, really. In thank, the you, end, right? thank you, Katie. You see, Katie, you said that because you are a gangster. <laughs> Rufus you. Buck is not a baddie to me. It, yeah. To me, the author, Rufus Buck is not a baddie. Okay, when he kills that guy in cold blood, he kills him because he's an enemy of progress, right? I've never met a human being that wants to pay their taxes. Mm, can't <laughs> wait to pay my taxes. The government, the Rufus, the Rufus Buck gang is just the government. They're trying to build something that's a model for... All of us, they are ruthless in upholding the law as the government. It doesn't mean they were outlaws because they operate outside the law. But film-wise, they don't do anything unscrupulous. Whereas they do things ruthless, like, what's your name? Bang. Whereas the minute you meet the Nat Love gang, they are killing the Crimson Hood gang in cold blood. Mm-hmm. They're killing the Crimson Hoods in cold blood. Yeah. Because they robbed the bank. That could have been the most friend. There was no internet those days and no cell phones. For all we know, that bank robbery, and I love talking about this stuff because, as you can see, because I wrote it. <laughs> but for all we know, that bank robbery could have been the most friendliest bank robbery that ever took place. The Crimson Hoods could have actually said, hey guys, look, we're going to work really hard to pay this money back. And they probably would have done. I'm just saying, we doubt it. But who knows? And they get killed in cold blood. So who's the baddie? It's about switching everything on its head. When the two women face each other off, while all the men have weapons and guns, 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 those two women, like gangsters, throw their guns, toss their guns to the side and say, let's go and mm-hmm. go in it. Fisticuffs. Showing the men outside, you don't have to be doing You can handle it this way. 
fisticuffs. The attractive thing about The Harder They Fall was the ability to turn everything we know on its head. The showdown with Beckwith. Countdown for five, five, four, three, pew! Just turning everything that you expect on its head. It breaks your heart. You know, because you, you, as soon as someone starts a countdown, you kind of worry that it's not going to make it down. And with that one, you really hope it's going to make it. And and it just doesn't. That moment. Yeah, the minute he says countdown for five, but he warns him. Nat loves a dead man walking, but you don't have to be quick draw. Go yeah. back from whence you came and we leave it at that. No. Okay, countdown from five. The minute Beckwith starts counting, he's dead. Yeah. Um, this is a... Something you read in a lot of people writing about this movie and about Idris Elba and Jonathan Majors, I think mostly, but really everyone is they're all filmed like movie stars. Like the way the camera pays attention to these people, they are big name and light stars. And it's hard to, I think, p- for me to put my finger on what makes that happen. And obviously the actors are charismatic and that's part of it. But as a filmmaker, I'm assuming that that is your goal, that you want to film all these people looking incredible. So what do you do? What is the thing that you do behind the camera to make them look like giant movie stars the way they do in this movie? I think, one, I mean, a lot of it is casting, right? It's casting. The minute you meet um, Arnold Schwarzenegger as a man in Conan the Barbarian, right? Like, he's he's pushing the thing, he's pushing the thing around, the turnstile around, 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 around. He's a young slave boy, and then he... And you see him with the sword. Celluloid just loves Arnold. But Celluloid loves, even though we, we, we shot digitally... But film loves Regina King. It loves Lakeith Stanfield. It loves... So you also know, you have to know, I think, how to shoot um, these people. But then I also think that just like meeting someone in real life, you kind of make up your mind in the first 10 seconds, the impression mm. that a person has on you. Your brain either goes, hmm, or hmm, or interesting, or ah, save me, right? It's meeting, meeting a uh, character in a film is like your immediate reaction when on a blind date. So I believe what helps is the entrance, the introduction to these characters. And Nat Love has an amazing introduction. Jim Beckwith has an amazing... Brothers Grime. Everyone has an amazing... Bill Pickett upon my return. Everyone has an amazing... Cuffy fighting the guys at the door. Stay shots me. One, get that horse in a wagon. Trudy Smith... We ain't no nincompoop. Anyway, I think the introductions make up the audience's mind immediately and make you go, this is hard. Like Rufus Buck's introduction on the train. Well, I mean, that's that's an entire scene's worth of an introduction. That's an entire scene's worth of an introduction. I don't know. That's my favourite film introduction in a long time. It's my favourite Idris Elba cinematic introduction. I just think it's hard. Um, yeah. So I think that that helps as well. And then be fearless with with your plans and aims for the for the camera. Be fearless with them because the camera is the thing that tells the story. So I don't necessarily like mundane coverage of like over the shoulder reverse two shot for a conversation. Yeah. Over the shoulder reverse two shot shot come in for cutaways. It's such a bland way to tell the stories. I try to get in between the characters so I don't feel like they're talking outside of me. Because the camera tells a story, I believe that we have to utilise the camera in order to tell that story effectively. 
And which is why I go hard on my introductions and in the long shots, the cable cam from the back of the mansion right down to Jonathan Majors on his horse, from, from Rufus Buck, Idris Elba to Nat Love, Jonathan Majors, in one clean shot. I, j- I just believe the camera, the camera does it when you, when you trust it. You, you have to have a conversation with the camera when you're storyboarding and stuff. Like, look, man, I want to try this. Does it work? The, cam- yeah. the camera will tell you about <laughs> crossing the axis. You're lying, you know, it just, it, the camera, for the most part, doesn't lie. Um, well, speaking of introductions, your title card, I noticed the, the, when I was just rewatching it, that it's, uh, it's like a film projector skipping and freezing and shuddering. And I love that flourish. And I just wanted to know why that was, that was what you wanted to do for your name at the beginning of the film. You know, incidentally, I think when we were working on it, myself, my editor, Tom, Tom, um, Eagles, he had put like a James Samuel logo and then kind of got rid of it with a flutter. I was like, ah, that's kind of hard. This this is real. Yeah. This is real hard, Michael Jack. This is hard, meaning great. This is mm. real hard, Prince Roger Nelson. Like, mm, <laughs> I could dig it. And so we kind of just we kind of just left it um, left it in there. And I love the sound of like a film projector. In the end, in the end, um, you may not have noticed when they're riding off, it goes skinny. Yeah, yeah. And that was my love of westerns when I was a kid. I was like, why does it always go skinny? At the end, and yeah. uh, and uh, I remember learning. Um, uh, obviously, it's because they need to fit. They used to cut those movies with TV. They used to mm-hmm. crop them, but they need to fit all the credits in. Otherwise, <laughs> it would say Clint East and Lee Van Cle- <laughs> Lee Van Cle- yeah. uh, So they would squeeze it. So in homage to the westerns, I squeeze the camera. I go skinny, uh, <laughs> and then just like just to give it that feel. I used to. I used to love. I'll probably do something like that in all my films. The beginning and ending is such a spot for setting the tone and then setting the tone for people leaving out there. Like you really get to to go big in those moments. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I think um, going big is exactly why why we came. That kind of thing is it leads into what you said about you know I'm gonna put everything in in there. I always say obey your crazy. When you're creating, obey your crazy at all costs. Obey your crazy. Don't second guess it. Those thoughts are there for a reason. Go create, like, obey your crazy. Still keep within the parameters of the story that you're telling, but obey your crazy. And uh, that is, that's what I've done with The Heart of A4. I just wanted to obey my crazy and have the camera, have the camera celebrate these people in front of it so the camera could then relay its story to myself and Tom Eagles and then we can relay it to everyone else. Yeah. Um, maybe one last question for, for anyone who's seen the harder they fall and maybe hasn't seen a bunch of Westerns and thinks, Oh, this is cool. I want to do more of these. What would you send people to like that, that are movies either like the harder they fall or that you just love and think people should see if they want to like Westerns. I think I'll just send them to movies that I love because I'll get away. I'll, I'll firstly, um, most any Western I send them would have those tropes that turn them off. Yeah, that's true. So um, I would just send them to movies I love and let them know that the only thing that makes a Western a Western is its geographical time and placement and not even necessarily the time these days. Because you watch that film with Ben Foster and um, Chris Pine, Hello High Water. That's mm-hmm. a Western, yeah. right? Modern day. Yeah, it's a modern yeah. day Western. So um, I would show them films that, that I absolutely love and show them how they relate to what I did in With the Harder They Fall. I'll show them just movies that I, that I absolutely love. I'll show them The Graduate. 
and its usage of the Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack to visuals mm-hmm. is is seamless and amazing. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Come to talk with you again. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. April, come she will. Well, thanks to you, Mrs. Robinson. Like, be, I'd show them that before before I showed them a, a Western. Then they'll understand my train of thought when I'm employing music in these particular scenes. And, you know, I, I would show them, I would show them other, other films. I would love to watch a double feature, The Graduate and The Heart of They Fall. That'd be really fun. <laughs> Please program that. That'd be super hard. <laughs> and, and, and I'll show you like particular things. I go, you remember that in The Heart of They Fall? Now look here. Yeah. Uh, when he's on the bus. And I think they play The Sound of Silence. But he's on the, um, Dustin Hoffman's on the bus. To me, that's the equivalent of um, Nat Love coming from behind the bushes and you hear a voice over the soundtrack saying, away with the wind she goes. Well, away with the wind she goes. Then the camera comes around and you see it's Nat Love singing with the strings as her garden grows. Hold those flowers close. For away with the wind, she goes. I'll be back with information by sunup. <laughs> like it just all talk ex- about movie stars. Yeah, yeah. It just all exists in my head, kind of, and then I kind of um, uh, when I'm writing it out, just make it make sense. Yeah, I mean, there's nobody else making movies like you, so whatever what you're doing is working. So thank you for for making them that way. Thank you so much. I, I think. Um, um, It just shows that I'm not all the way crazy. That does it for this week's show. You can find us at VanityFair.com where we're reviewing and reacting to a whole lot of the stuff that we're talking about that is just now um, emerging out into the world, which is so exciting. Um, as mentioned, you can text us, joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7118. We love answering your questions. You can find us on Twitter at littlegoldmen and on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Campfield 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best new title for this podcast goes to Rebecca Ford. How are the shrimp doing? This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.